someone to be around you. Someone to sit down and pour you short But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way. Sometimes that's when you finally find your space. Hello, welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Steven Lyman, in Fukuoka, Japan. Today I'm here with a very special guest, Joshi Natone of the SG Shochu. Joshin has worked with Shingo Gokan and the SG Group in three different countries thus far. For those of you unfamiliar, the SG Group is a bar-focused hospitality group led by the extraordinary bartender Shingo Gokan, who made a name for himself at the legendary speakeasy Angel Share in the East Village in New York City. Since then, Shingo's gone on to launch bars in both China and Japan. Today, there are eight bars across three cities, and all of them are incredible experiences and well worth seeking out if you find yourself in Tokyo, Shanghai, or Naha down in Okinawa. Since joining the SG Group, Joshin has tended bar in Shanghai and Tokyo. He was also tasked with helping create the SG Shochu, a line of Shochu designed specifically with the bartender in mind. In addition to his bartending and brand development work, Joshin has been intimately involved in the print design and musical experiences at many of the SG Group's bars. I've known Joshin for about a decade now. We overlapped at Sakamai in the Lower East Side, where I was a regular guest bartender, and Joshin was a member of the team before he left to go start working at AngelShare. Joshin, welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And like you said, I think we've probably known each other for about 10 years at this point. That's right. So yeah, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a minute. It has been. When I was living in New York City and guest bartending, I had my Shochu Tuesday. This is before we were smart enough to start calling it Show Tuesday. I was doing that every week at Sakamai in the Lower East Side, which was a high concept izakaya, basically. And they, they endeavored to have the best shochu list in New York City, and I'd help them develop their original menu. And then one day, this, this new staff member showed up and uh, was very curious about shochu. Do you remember our early conversations and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I, and I do think that Sakamai probably had one of the best shochu lists in New York uh, at that time. Um, I assume they are still one of the best uh, places to enjoy shochu in New York City today. But yeah, I do remember going in there and, um, you know, when I decided that I wanted to work at this restaurant, Sakamai, I actually went in, you know, be- before uh, applying just just to get a sense of what kind of place it is. And I remember going in and trying just one of the beers and one of the snacks off the menu and asked the bartender a couple of questions about shochu just to uh, get a sense of what their, you know, it's not uh, maybe it's not a nice move, but I was just kind of curious uh, what their perspective on. I was asking him how how certain uh, types of shochu should be enjoyed and whatnot. And yeah, it, it was just kind of cool to see um, this spirit that I'm so familiar with in a city that I'm so unfamiliar with. So I was living in New York for probably just about two or three months at that point. So yeah, it was a brand new introduction, familiar item in an unfamiliar place. I think that just speaks to your wisdom, the fact that you actually went in and checked out the place before you decided you wanted to work there. So that's that's more to your credit <laughs> than anything else. I think that's a that's impressive. Yeah. And, and you know what? Like one of the things that I <laughs> that really this is going to sound really like a possible uh, like a, mi- a minor point that really drew me in. But they were playing Afrobeat, like the genre of music. Um you know, like Fela Kuti and stuff like that in the restaurant. And I had never really heard that type of music being played in uh, izakaya environment, especially in a uh, Sakamai type establishment where the design is really 
you know, it's classy, it's casual, but it's quite classy. And so to have that paired with like izakaya food that is also super elevated, shochu, and then like Afrobeat. And I just, that Afrobeat really kind of <laughs> was like the cherry on the top where I was like, okay, this, this is probably, it's probably something interesting going on here. Yeah. In my experience, the music never sucked at Sakamai for sure. Uh, I was in there last summer uh, and their shochu list, shochu list is still going strong. They, they're, they're holding their own. So it's, uh, it's, it's kept, kept its original sense from that perspective. And of course, you've got Chef Akiyama and his incredible uh, food, which is quite shochu friendly. He's from Miyazaki. So it makes sense that he's going to, he's going to cook things that go with the local drink. Um, but how long did you work at Sakamai? I actually probably worked there for only about a year. Okay. Yeah, a solid year. And from there, I moved to Angel Share, which is a bar in the East Village. Um, yeah, just around the year mark. Okay. Yeah, and, uh, and I guess how you got connected with Angel Share was that Shingo Gokan was uh, part of the team that helped open Sakamai, and he developed the original cocktail list. And he would come in and do his cocktail omakase at Sakamai. What did he do that about once a month or? or so? Yeah, when I was there, um, he was doing this about once a month. Uh, basically, it was a cocktail pairing dinner, like a 10-course cocktail pairing dinner. Sakamai, if any of the listeners know, there there used to be two bars. I think now there's only one. But there was a front bar which made cocktails and the back bar, which was a really beautiful bar that didn't make cocktails. It was like a service bar for sake and shochu. But it was nicer than the cocktail bar. Um, so, but during these uh, tasting menu cocktail pairings, um, Shingo and another bartender uh, from Angel Share would come in there. There would be about 10 guests, mostly invited, sort of VIP type guests. And we would do two seatings, one at six o'clock, one at eight o'clock or something like that, and serve 10 courses. A lot of times it was sponsored by some brand. It might, it might have been a certain spirit brand that was uh, the base for all the cocktails. And other times it was more of a free-for-all, just creating drinks, uh, just purely based on the flavors and the pairings and stuff. But this was the first time that I was, I mean, Sakamai was the first time I was serving in a restaurant, but the cocktail pairing concept was really stimulating for me because as a food runner, uh, basically, you know, even on a typical day, you're basically trying to avoid the wrath of the kitchen by not letting the food go cold for an extra second and running back and forth, making sure the dishes are coming out on time uh, for the different tables. But when you're dealing with cocktail pairings, you're, you're dealing with another level of timing that you don't experience in regular service, even if you're serving a course menu, because you have 10 guests, uh, 10 courses, and the kitchen is downstairs, the bar is on the first floor. So you're running back and forth and you need to time the dishes to come out perfectly in front of all 10 people exactly when the bartender finishes pouring the final drink and it's ready to be served. So the food's going to get colder, the drink's going to get warmer, and you have 10 people to put the dishes in front of. So this was like this hugely stimulating, I think what would be the equivalent of somebody on like the trading floor uh, at a stock, <laughs> stock market or something where you're just on hyper focus and I'm just communicating with the chef, you know, is it two minutes, three minutes until the next next dish? And I'm communicating with Shingo behind the bar, who basically because he's serving the guests, he can't really say to me out loud, it's going to be three minutes until my next drink mm -hmm. is ready. And sometimes, you know, maybe something gets spilled or the bar back 
is, you know, forgot one item or something and something takes a little longer than expected. And so you have to kind of then uh, work around those issues. And yeah, it felt like a sport. I really, I really enjoyed that. Well, I didn't realize it was that intense. I actually never had a chance to enjoy one of those uh, while, while they were happening, but sounds like I missed out. Um, now, so that's how you originally met Shingo, is that right? And then how did you end up going to work at AngelShare? Um, well, so after one of these cocktail pairing tasting menus, um, we, we would often just uh, have a little briefing afterwards, have a, have a drink and just talk about the service and whatnot. And actually, one of the first times we met, I realized we had the same birthday, first of all, Shingo and I were both born on Valentine's okay. Day. And, um, and our Japanese names are written in four characters and two of the four characters are the same as well. So it was kind of like this thing where it was like a, quite the coincidence. And so that was kind of one thing that I found interesting. And the idea of cocktail pairings really intrigued me. But I was more interested in just other, you know, the possibility of combining other experiences in the pairing way. So the pairing way, what I mean by that is the idea of one plus one equals more than two. So something creating the more than some of its parts. And what if you can combine sound? What if you can combine lighting, not just to match the atmosphere, but to really create this uh, synergetic sort of experience? And so I was talking to him about being curious about uh, what, what would it mean to pair music to this cocktail pairing experience. And yeah, that was kind of the inception. Uh, he told me that, you know, he, he is all about the five cents experience, but in order to really get into it as a professional, I would need to be able to talk, speak the language of flavors and these, these things that you need to communicate with the other professionals involved. And so at that moment, um, going down the chef route, you know, there you can go chef, bartender, sommelier, um, barista, there's obviously these different uh, avenues. And at that time, bar just seemed like the most interesting world that was really vast and kind of unknown to me. So yeah, that, that was like the step that really brought me into bar world and angel share. And I've heard it said many times that if you if you know how to bartend, you'll never be without a job for long, right? It's some, it's a pretty important skill set that you've developed. And if, if anything went sideways at some point, you could, you could always find work, right? That's true. Yeah. And, and if I ever travel long-term in some cities, I think it would be a cool thing to bartend in these different, different cities, say in South America or in other parts of Asia. It's a great way to meet people and great way to get to know the city for sure. Well, and you've had that experience. Maybe we'll talk about Angel Share for a minute. Actually, so there was a, because that bar has been open for about 30 years. And so Shingo was sort of the, the second generation of uh, staff. And a lot of things changed. At the very beginning, it wasn't necessarily the same type of Angel Share, same type of cocktail menu or clientele as what somebody might remember from 20 years ago um, or even 10 years ago. So Shingo was, yeah, I would say the second generation head bartender. And, uh, I think there was kind of a swap out of the whole team. So it kind of started fresh, brand new menu, brand new sort of, you know, rules of operations. And, and that probably attracted a new set of clients. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that was, uh, that was the angel share that I sort of joined in on. 
Okay. And I actually remember going and visiting Angel Share when Shingo was working after we had met through Sakamai because he and I had been in meetings, talk about their drinks menu and that sort of thing. And then I remember challenging him at one point that we still need, probably still need a, an iconic sweet potato shochu cocktail, right? This is just something I feel like you've got the margarita for, for tequila. You've got the daiquiri for rum. If we just had that one cocktail for sweet potato shochu that everybody knew, oh, that's a sweet potato shochu cocktail. I think that would be hugely important. And I still think that it, maybe it's less front of mind for me these days, but it's something at that time I was very concerned with. And I went to Shingo and I, I suggested the Kurarashi Genshu from Satsuma Distillery uh, to see what he could do with it. And the next time I came back, he, he said, All right, I, want, I want you to try this. And he gave me this cocktail. I could not taste any sweet potato shochu. <laughs> so um, I was, I was uh, a little disappointed, let's say. But I think he's, he's, uh, he's figured it out since then. Well, perhaps the flavors blended in too well. It might have been, yeah. It might have been a little too nuanced for, for my palate. So you end up at Angel Share, this iconic speakeasy in the East Village, easily one of the top cocktail bars in New York City. And what was that experience like? Angel Share is a Japanese-style cocktail bar, as it's known, and that that comes with different things. There's definitely a sort of a hierarchical structure, and you know, good for learning. You really start at the bottom, no matter where you come from. Even if you had a lot of bartending experience, you're going to start off washing glassware, and there's no dishwasher. I mean, uh, we don't use a machine, dishwashing machine. So every piece of glass is washed by hand. And for a high volume bar to do that and drying everything, you really learn how to prioritize and you really learn how to, uh, you know, the nitty gritty, like the kind of basic skills that just kind of stick with you for life. How, how do you clean a piece of glassware to perfection in the minimal amount of time? And you definitely break a lot of glassware in the process, but yeah, I did that for about a straight six months and then kind of moved up serving barbacking. And by the end of, I think the year and a half mark or so, I was officially a bartender. And about six months after that, I, I moved on. So I was there for about two years in total. And uh, it definitely, I would say it was a foundational experience in my career. But you didn't really escape Shingo, did you? Shingo at the time when I when I went um when I started working at Angel Share, he had been there for about eight years, I believe. And at that time he was starting Speak Low in Shanghai. So he had won the Bacardi cocktail competition in 2012. And that sort of uh was a catalyst for a series of events that led to the opening of the first of SG Group's bars called Speak Low in Shanghai. And basically it was going back and forth between speak low and angel share. So we would see him maybe once a month for several, several days in a row. And then he would maybe go back. Um, also guest bartending in different cities and whatnot. So the team was fairly, uh, we had other leaders at that point. Um, sure, sure. But basically around the two year mark, uh, another bar as part of the SG group called uh, sober company was getting ready to open in Shanghai. So Shanghai was actually somewhere I studied abroad. When I was in college, I studied Spanish, French, and Chinese. And uh, for the Chinese part, I did a semester abroad in Shanghai. And so um, Shingo offered if I wanted to uh, be a part of the opening team there. And I found it would be a really cool experience to go back to the city as, a, as an adult. 
we talked about it being a three month quick stint, which turned into a year very, very quickly. But yeah, that was a really the next stage, I would say, of the the bar experience. And that's actually where you and I were reunited. When I came to Shanghai uh, for work, I reached out to you and I think I I might have come to Sober Company every night I was in Shanghai. <laughs> or Possibly. Just about. Yeah. Possibly. Uh, and you were working one bar, but that's a that's a fascinating concept. I mean, if you could maybe briefly describe uh, Speak Low and Sober Company as concepts, because they're it's like peeling back an onion, right? They're really fascinating places to visit. I've worked extensively with SG Group, and one of the characteristics is that every bar has a totally unique concept. But Speak Low being the very first one, uh, there was no real uh, speakeasy culture in China at that point. The bar culture over the last uh, five to 10 years has exploded in the cities in China. And now you can find pretty amazing bars in almost every city. But uh, back in 2012, 2013, 2014, um, there was still a little bit, a few and far in between. There were still cocktail bars, but it wasn't like going drinking in New York City, for example. The concept of speak low is essentially what if there was prohibition in Shanghai back in the 1920s? So you got a little bit of the Art Deco sort of uh, aesthetic uh, with the completely speakeasy bar. And each floor, there's four floors. Um, not only can you not find speak low the bar, but once you're inside, uh, it's quite difficult to find how to get into the second floor and uh, third floor as well. So that was the first concept. And Sober Company was a New York City concept. So as you know, uh, drinking in New York City, going to the West Village, going to the East Village, going to the Lower East Side, it all has different vibes and different kinds of people go out drinking to these neighborhoods for to have a different type of night. So we wanted to encapsulate that in one joint. Uh, so you'd walk in to a, the first floor, which is a West Village style cafe bar, um, you know, Cafe Dante, there's like that kind of style of aperitivos and coffee. And going up to the second floor, we had a kitchen, Chinatown inspired. Uh, restaurant, bar, and then like a East Village style, uh, uh, I guess a digestive style cocktail bar. So that was all kind of tucked into one building. Yeah, that was a that was a fun spot for sure. I really enjoyed my my time there. Yeah, very very sarcastically named Sober Company because rarely would you uh, come out sober. Yeah, maybe if you just popped in for a coffee <laughs> on the ground floor, but if you if you went anywhere else, you were in trouble. Yeah, you stayed in Shanghai for a year. That was the extent of my visa. So yeah, I was there for one year. My plan was to go back to New York City since all my things were still there. I left thinking that I was going to come back after three months. But uh, around that time, there was talk of opening a bar in Japan, uh, which is now the SG Club, uh, our first, the SG Group's first cocktail bar in Tokyo. And even though I grew up kind of going back and forth between Japan and the US every summer, I had never lived in Japan, so I thought this would be a really cool opportunity to spend a solid amount of time here. And yeah, I just went from Shanghai, took a quick stop back in New York, got my things and hopped back on a plane, went back to Japan. Okay. And then, so you have been in Tokyo ever since, is that right? Yep. That would be four years ago. And yeah, I've been living in Shibuya basically. Okay, nice. And how do you like Tokyo? It's a, yeah, it's a totally different experience. I like Tokyo. It's a vast city. So I can't say even after four years that I've really explored all the different parts because even within just the neighborhood of Shibuya, for example, there's 
that's almost just a city on its own where um, different parts just have totally different personalities. And, and especially working at night at a bar, you, you sort of, you're going out is a little bit limited compared to having a day job. So yeah, it took me a full, you know, several years to kind of get a hang on the, the dining and nightlife of the city. And, but I really like it. I, I think it's a, a city unlike any other in the world in that it combines this meticulous Japanese mentality with like the chaos of what comes with a big city. So yeah, it's a, it's a cool combination. Yeah. I, I visited Tokyo for the first time after I uh, started living in Manhattan and Manhattan had always felt massive to me. And then I went to Tokyo and it felt like Manhattan was small. Obviously the SG group is tireless, has opened several other places in Tokyo over the last few years. Why don't we run through the concepts of the other spots really briefly? When I arrived to Japan, uh, we opened the SG Club and I was behind the bar. But at this point, I was starting to do a little bit of design as well for the bar, uh, designing menus, you know, our business cards and little things like that. No formal education, just kind of uh, out of necessity. And I started really enjoying that aspect. So as I was bartending, I kind of got more into that. and. You know, down the road, we opened several other cocktail bars, each of different concepts. We have Swirl, which is a wine cocktail bar, Esjilo, which is a cocktail izakaya. We have another place in Shanghai called The Odd Couple, which is like a 80s inspired uh, cocktail bar in collaboration with Steve Schneider. And The Bellwood, which is inspired by the Taisho era in Japan, when Western culture started first really coming into Japan. And so we have all these different places, but Right around the first year mark of the SG Club uh, is when the SG Shochu idea, the inception for this product, was born. So really the crux of why we're talking today is your experience in Shochu from the perspective of a bartender and then also working with uh, the SG group. And the SG Shochu is a big part of that where you helped create this lineup. In the simplest terms, the SG Shochu is the perfect Shochu for cocktails. If I had to say it simply, that's what it is. And in order to represent the diversity of shochu, we made not only the sweet potato variety, but kome, imo, and mugi, so rice, sweet potato, and barley. And that was just to showcase the, the just the you know variety that are available. Obviously, the three don't cover the entire spectrum, but um, they each have a unique character, and uh, we wanted to showcase that. It's kind of a bridge between the traditional Japanese, I guess, um, cultural understanding of shochu and what does this Asian spirit mean in the modern context of cocktail culture. And cocktail cult culture in itself has evolved so much over the last 10, 20 years. And it has, in, uh, it's, it has this uh, level of creativity and um, expertise and professionalism that didn't used to exist that is now on par with uh, some, you know, Michelin level chefs and, and uh, top class culinary experiences. And so I think, I think the evolution of the cocktail scene uh, really kind of, I think, played a big part in the inception of the SG Shochu as well. I guess taking a step back, am I correct in that your father is Japanese? Is yeah, right? my father is Japanese. Yep. From Fukuoka. Is that right? Yes. So yeah, my father comes from Kitakyushu, which is 
a city a little about an hour east of Fukuoka City. And、uh, my mom comes from originally from San Francisco. They, they met in、uh, university in the US. My, my father went to、uh, his graduate school in the US. And、uh, since they've been married, they've been in California. So that's where I grew up. But we've basically gone back to our father's home in Fukuoka every single year of our life. So that's how、uh, I, my affection, deep affection for Kyushu and Fukuoka is、uh, rooted. It all makes sense now. So, I guess,、uh, what were your earliest experiences with shochu then? If you, I'm kind of imagining having spent time in Japanese homes in Kyushu, that even as a child, you would have been around people enjoying、uh, this wonderful local spirit. Is that fair? Yeah. So, I think in my involvement in shochu and alcohol and you know, hospitality industry in general and my love for food, a lot of that really stemmed from my father's side of the family. So, it's a pretty big family, and we always had dinner together. And for my uncle, his beverage of choice was shochu, as it is for many、uh, older people in, in Kyushu. And so, I have four cousins and one brother, and all of us were on a rotation to make oyuari for my uncle every night. So, he, he would just pass his glass, his empty glass, to whoever the next child was in line. <laughs> And we, we just knew to、uh, go to the hot water machine and just pour him、uh, hot water for the oyuari. So, oyuari, as most of these listeners know, is hot water with shochu, and it's kind of the Kyushu way of enjoying shochu. So, I think I was introduced to that by the time I could transport liquid without spilling it. That's <laughs> probably about four years old or five years old or something like that. And so, In my, in my mind, that was alcohol. That's what drinking really was about.、Uh, so it <laughs> so, really yeah, was one of I... your first exposures. That's, that's、uh, amazing. And you sound like a perfect nephew, really. <laughs> and you know, it's an old school way. So I'm sitting next to my uncle who's smoking, chain smoking cigarettes and asking his nephew to go get his next drink. So, so definitely maybe, maybe not, not PG in, in, the, in the US, but it was a, it's what I thought was normal when I was a. When I was、sure. a five year old. <laughs> do, you, do you remember what ratio he drank? Was it a five five or six four, four six? So his ratio has gradually、uh, changed over time and is getting more and more hot water heavy over the years. I think that's typical for older people. But when I was, when I was youngest, it was five five. I remember、okay. making, I remember him pointing to the middle of the glass and saying,、uh, water up to here. And As I was in middle school, high school, the、uh, water level kept increasing and increasing. So, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I th- yeah, I think you're right. That is pretty common. You just gave a shochu service seminar at the JSS Sake and Shochu Academy. And in your slides, you actually mentioned for, for older guests, consider a little bit more water than shochu when you're doing your ratios, just because alcohol tolerance decreases as you, as you age. So, I, I appreciate that level of, of courtesy to your, to your elders. That was my first time、uh, really doing a presentation on shochu itself. Of course, I've done a few presentations on the SG shochu brand and the cocktail context, but to,、um, to communicate to people who obviously like sake, like, you know, like Japanese culture, and to try to consolidate my love and you know, somewhat of a formal understanding about shochu into an hour and a half. Presentation was really difficult because I think I think、uh, I just have some intense,、uh, I guess, kind of 
passion about certain aspects, including the ratio and the temperature and stuff like that, and who you're serving the drink to and what environment to drink it in, that all plays a big role. So it, it took a lot of effort to try to tone down the, the intensity a little bit and <laughs> make it a little bit approachable. I thought you did a fantastic job. And I guess for me, hearing you talk about the shochu service styles as somebody who's worked in the bar industry for a long time has helped develop shochu brands uh, was really enlightening. I mean, it's, it's things that I think I've learned and I know because of my long experience in the category. Uh, but it was really nice how you were able to lay it out for essentially a room full of sake drinkers who are not used to using dilution. Sake is typically you play with temperature, right? And serving vessels and things like that to get different experiences and food pairings. But when it comes to shochu, you have the added element. You can play with temperature, but you can also play with dilution, right? And uh, maybe if you could talk a little bit about your philosophy around shochu service. Okay, well, I will probably contradict myself if I come on this show again. But I think something that is really interesting about shochu is that I will dare to call it a very risky spirit. It's a high risk, high return endeavor because there are very few other things that require dilution right like you don't you don't buy a beer and doesn't say on the instruction sheet to uh dilute it to a level that fits the occasion <laughs> or or you know <laughs> typically most things come the way that they are enjoyed or i think especially in japan because the culture surrounding shochu is that you don't drink it neat. Most Japanese people today don't drink it neat. So you have this spirit that has different types of koji, different types of ingredients, different vessels to drink it out of, and different ratios and different temperatures. I think that's a really, frankly, confusing amount of information to deliver to somebody that is exposed to it for a first time. And I've been thinking about this lately, that it really is a high-risk thing to have somebody do to get the spirit that was produced to perfection uh, by, you know, my perfection being a relative term, but whoever is bottling it is putting their life's energy into figuring out what they want to do with the fermentation, what ingredients they want to use in distillation. And they come up with this product. And then now it has to get handed to anyone from the highest level professional to the lowest level novice who is going to dilute it with who knows what kind of water, what kind of ratio, you have no idea. And that is what's going to determine whether you like the drink or not. So you're basically putting this thing in the hands of a, you know, an equivalent of like an, an anonymous commenter online. You have no idea where they're coming from. So yeah, in that sense, I think shochu is quite a risky spirit, you could say. That's, that's an interesting perspective. I think the the fun of it as well, though, once you get into it, is exploring a particular brand and playing with it in all the different ways and seeing what works best, right? I, but you're, you're absolutely right. You're essentially putting this handcrafted spirit into the hands of an abject amateur and expecting them to figure out the best way to drink it. Uh, fortunately, here in Japan, a lot of people have a lot of experience with how they prefer to drink it, right? But mm -hmm. on the flip side, I've had so many times where I've received messages from both listeners and, and followers that send me a picture of a bottle and say, I tried this Oyuwadi and I didn't like it. And invariably, that's a vacuum distilled shochu, right? 
and they aren't really designed for hot service or designed for cold dilution for the most part. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's really interesting to see, uh, or to hear your perspective about how it's, a, it is risky. And I, I'd never really put that term to it before, but you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. Well, I don't know how controversial you want me to get on this show, but <laughs> I think even in Japan, it's difficult to find shochu served well, because in order for shochu to be served well, most of the time you need to like shochu to, to be able to have the care to serve it well. And if you go to just any typical izakaya anywhere in the country, I think in Kyushu, you're going to have a much higher likelihood of getting a good shochu drink because it's embedded in the culture. Most people have made these drinks for their moms or dads or grandpas. But especially if you get further from shochu culture, which is definitely concentrated in Kyushu, a lot of people, even in Japan, are not everyone is super familiar with the spirit. So in that sense, I actually want to propose to shochu drinkers that you should just drink it neat. It's actually, it sounds like a, like a scary thing to do, especially for people who like shochu, because most people who like shochu have spent enough time in Japan. And in Japan today, people don't drink it neat. So you kind of have this sense of like, well, it's a spirit that should be drank with hot water, cold water, etc. But if you think about it, shochu was distilled as like a home beverage in, in Kyushu back in the day, way back in the day. And ice was a very valuable item. Only like the richest people back in the day could access ice, right? So they're definitely not drinking cold mizuari. And maybe hot water was more accessible, but even that you need to put firewood and boil some water to get warm water. So the likelihood is that people were drinking straight shochu. The world at large, you have the whole culture of of brandies and whiskeys to sip on 40 ABV plus spirits neat and really enjoying the flavors of it. So it's not like shochu inherently cannot withstand that. I think it's more of a cultural uh, habit that we've kind of associated that this is something that needs to be diluted. But in reality, if you want to just get a sense of the spirit, you can just drink it. Sure. And Contextually, I mean, shochu typically comes off the still, let's say between 37 and 45% alcohol. It's then diluted before bottling. So you already have the dilution in play for most brands before it ever hits your glass. So there's no reason you couldn't just chill the bottle directly if you wanted it cold or warm the shochu directly if you wanted it warm, or you can just drink it at room temperature. I still like a little bit of dilution, especially when I'm enjoying my shochu with food. I Mm -hmm. still think at 25% alcohol, it can be a little bit hot. So I've gone to using, basically doing a twice up. So no ice, mm-hmm. about 50-50 with water, getting it down to about a wine strength, right? You're about 12 and a half, 13%. And that, that seems to be a nice way to enjoy it. But, mm-hmm. but going back in history, shochu wasn't being bottled at 25%. That's entirely driven by Japanese tax. And if you find older bottlings, things probably before the 80s or so, most things are 35%. Right. So when you're doing Oyuwadi with a 35% shochu, which is probably more traditional versus a 25%, you're getting a lot more dilution. You're getting a different experience than people had. If you want it, if you want a traditional style, Oyuwadi, maybe that's what you do with Genshu, right? With undiluted shochu. Uh, and then you 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 figure out another way to enjoy your lower proof expressions. That's that's an interesting idea that you, you had there. And so anything else as far as shochu service that you have 
thoughts about? I know that you're very careful in how you use carbonation, for example, for for soda wadi. Yeah, I guess that that comes more from the bartender kind of experience and what you just get accustomed to paying attention to everything from the ice to the temperature of the soda and how to activate the carbonation just enough to where you're getting enough of the bubbles, but you're not losing them. Um, all those skills definitely transfer into shochu drinking. And yeah, it, it, I think it was really good working in a bar because you just get a little bit more uh, control over over being able to set, accomplish uh, the exact type of thing that you're trying to have. So yeah, that, that part I would recommend um, anyone really to kind of spend some time at cocktail bars because even if you don't work there, I think by osmosis, you'll learn some of the things that the bartenders do repetitively. And if you just ask them, why do you do that? There's usually some reason that you can bring home and immediately apply to your drinks. Sure. And I, I think as I've finally decided to to explore cocktails and, and accept the fact that cocktails are something I need to understand better, uh, both due to this podcast and, and for other reasons, I have started to do that. I pay a lot more attention to, to the, the drink being made. And I, I'm now applying methods that I'm learning from bartenders to my home bar, which is the same thing I did with my cooking. My home cooking is elevated a lot since I started hanging out with chefs. Right. And learning their methods and why they do different things and why they do whatever with temperature and surfaces and things is it's it's very much the same. I'm now applying that sort of learning, practical learning to to making cocktails. And I, I still don't think I make a good cocktail, but I make a better cocktail. Mm-hmm. Going back to the risky part of this, I guess this is like when I'm in an izakaya in Japan, I'll almost never order an oyuari. Because the water, they usually have the, the, the kettle hot enough to make tea. And to me, that's too hot for shochu. And you end up scalding the drink. Mm-hmm. Christopher's willing to drink oyuari anywhere, basically. But if it's too hot the first time, he'll tell them. <laughs> and he'll, mm-hmm. he'll get them to fix it. And I'm, I'm not quite so bold. But the other aspect of the drinking culture here is that you get, you get your own bottle and your own hot water and you, you mix them yourself. So you really can make them the way that you want to. And that's yeah. something I think I'd like to see that bottle service style of shochu service make it outside of Japan, because I think that's a really interesting cultural aspect of it. I really love how, especially if you're drinking in Kyushu, but depending on the crowd and also with sake, there's this same culture too, where if you have a table of 10 people, you're not raising your hand and ordering 10 different drinks. You're usually just going to get a bottle of something. And then especially with shochu, because it requires that dilution, there's a cultural aspect to who is going to do who is going to serve your group, right? Is it going to be the host? Is it going to be the youngest kid? If the youngest kid isn't capable of making good enough drinks for the older folks who happen to love shochu, then you're going to see an educational process of uh, somebody training the younger kid to make sure they know how to make a good mizuari for the rest of the group. And that sort of social aspect is not something you can readily experience if you just buy a bottle you know, and you live abroad or something like that. That's something I think even for shochu lovers in the US or in other countries, when you visit Japan, it's like the aspect of the drink that you get to really get a taste for by being a part of that group. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, that's one of the most fun kind of aspects about it is just how it works in practice. You know, you can't isolate the bottle from the situation. You, you're, the bottle is in the situation with you. And you got to figure out how to navigate it. So 
Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. In in the States, when we do, we'd, we'd often at Sakamai, I'd get a group of friends together or other izakayas in the city. If they had bottle service, I'd get a bottle and get the bucket of ice and some water for dilution or whatever, however we were drinking it. But typically people just made their own drinks. Everyone just sort of took their turn and, and made their own. But you're right. In Japan, it's very much about someone is usually serving and and playing host and 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 creating the drinks for everyone else. And that's a lot of responsibility. And yet you're right, the social aspect of it is is something that's hard to recreate overseas. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the SG group has created the SG Shochu as a shochu intended for cocktails, the best shochu for cocktails, uh, as you said earlier. But what is your general sense about shochu's potential for cocktails? My impression is that as long as I've been in shochu promotion, there's been the sense that cocktails are necessary. Mm-hmm. And it'd be interesting after all of your time uh, from New York to Shanghai to Tokyo and now having helped create a brand, what do you think about sh- shochu and cocktails? I definitely think that there is a lot of potential in shochu as for creating more expressive and unique cocktails that are not possible with other spirits. and. I'm not just saying that because I created a, a help, you know, was part of creating a shochu brand. And I say this as a sales pitch, but I also truly believe it because the koji aspect, this is not just a sales pitch. It actually has a, plays a fun, foundational role. In my mind, it lays a foundation for other flavors to, to then get stacked on top of. Koji in itself, I don't really think of it as uh, necessarily like a flavor component, but the the sort of um, results of a koji-based fermentation, you have these nooks and crannies that all kinds of other flavors can then lock itself onto. And so when you think about making cocktails with shochu, of course, there's different kinds of shochu that work better for it and um, some that are more conducive to just having in a more simple way. But it just definitely has this expressive potential that many other spirits don't. And Another thing I would say about shochu and cocktails is that traditionally drinking shochu with even soda water was considered kind of a taboo, especially if you're closer to the the distillers, closer to the shochu culture. People will drink with hot water or cold water or on the rocks. But if you start bringing out the soda, they're going to say, what are you doing? You know, that's not how you drink shochu. But recently that has started to change a lot, as you know. Sodawari is really entering even the shochu lover's lexicon. And what that does is it's changing the shochu that's being made. So you're getting more people making shochu that taste good in soda styles, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think cocktails, the same kind of thing is going to probably happen with cocktails where uh, not only does shochu have potential in cocktails, but once people start really making cocktails with it, there's going to be a new type of demand for what kind of characteristics these people are looking for. And one of the most basic things that was obvious from the beginning is that 40% ABV is easier to work with as a cocktail spirit compared to 25. But as we start using it more, we're going to find more things, more specific things that bartenders are going to look for in shochu. It's, we're kind of at the same stage as soda maybe 20 years ago where a lot of people still think, yeah, using shochu in cocktails, it's like, yeah, you're not getting the full characteristics of drinking it in a more simple way. But as that starts to change a little bit, I think we're going to see development of a new wave of drinks. That's uh, 
exciting for me. I have long said we need our iconic uh, emo or sweet potato shochu cocktail. And of course, the same is true for barley and rice and awamori and all of these uh, these wonderful spirits that uh, that we enjoy so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so any other thoughts about shochu and its potential? Yeah, I guess one thing I really feel about shochu is, you know, I have one part of my heart that is like a shochu salesman that I want more people to love shochu and I want people to realize its potential in cocktails and different applications. But there's another part of me that sees both shochu and bartending as, a, among other things, as still a very young culture. So we, we always say shochu has over 500 years of history, and that seems long compared to our lifetime, but that's not that long compared to a lot of other things. Like if you compare it to culinary culture, or if you compare it to the history of music or art, these things have spent way more time in evolution. And even in music, you're seeing like completely new developments in instruments or you know electronic equipment or in distribution and that is still changing the genre dramatically and so if you think about uh, 500 years or even if it was a thousand years it's still so young in my mind and um, as much as i want to learn more about the traditions and its origins and communicate that and learn that i think we still have a lot of agency in shaping what it will be 10 years from now or 50 years from now so you can kind of go back and forth between those two perspectives and uh, that is really exciting for me yeah i think there is the main maintaining tradition right i absolutely adore handmade shochu just because i realize how much care and work has gone into making those drinks but they still have to be worth drinking right and but then also you need the large scale production to meet demand. Not everything can be handmade. That's also just a really interesting perspective that the that the industry, even if it's five or six hundred years old, that's in the arc of history. That's that's not a long time. You're hitting me in the feels. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it's the same in the it's the same in the bar world too. There's definitely a lot of traditions in the bartender industry, but hey, like what else can we do, you know? Sure, sure. So this has been a great conversation, really inspiring for me. I mean, just hearing you talk about these things has been a joy. And to to think, you know, where we were when we met and where we are today, it's it's been it's only been ten years, but an incredible amount has happened. Uh, and it's just it's really nice to see you've everything you've accomplished, and and clearly you're still on your journey. And maybe we can just uh, finish up with you talking a little bit about what you're working on now. Yeah, I mean, uh, this past year, I uh, have left the SG Group technically. I still work with them quite intensively, but I started my own company called Flow Brand Design. And uh, a lot of what I've been doing for SG and, and my work is really about refining concepts and how to communicate these things to uh, an audience especially between Japanese culture and English-speaking culture. And so, yeah, this, uh, this uh, company, Flow, is uh, what I've been working on lately. And through this kind of new endeavor, I'm really excited to communicate the message uh, of whether it be shochu, whether it be you know, a certain bar project, or especially I'm uh, extremely passionate about Japanese fermented beverages and foods. So yeah, I hope that I can uh, contribute to 
uh, the culture in some way through that venue. Great. Well, uh, best of luck with that. It sounds like a much needed uh, resource for folks who are trying to convey this information to overseas audiences. And so where can people find you either to talk to you more about anything you've talked about on the show or maybe even to work with you? I would say I, I've been a ghost on social media by choice. So uh, flow.branddesign at gmail.com. Please feel free to email me. I do check that. Don't uh, be don't be upset if I don't respond to social media because I've been avoiding that like the plague. So, uh, yeah, that's where that's where you can get at me. We'll be sure to put that in the show notes so people can reach out to you uh, directly in case they have questions or comments or job opportunities. So, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, really uh, fantastic conversation. Thank you again so much um, to you, Stephen and Chris, for hosting this show. I've definitely listened to uh, a few episodes and I really like what you guys are up to. I also want to say thank you to you, Stephen, in particular, because uh, you were my first official shochu teacher besides my uncle, who uh, mostly <laughs> that was more mostly like a homeschool education. But um, Stephen back at uh, Sakamai really kind of planted the seeds of um, what shochu is just uh in this variety and in its kind of potential for enjoyment so thank you and i'm really excited to continue learning about this well as a longtime academic mentor in my other life i'm always very very pleased when one of my students achieves the level of success that you've managed to over the past decade and i'm sure you'll accomplish much more in the future i'm looking forward to seeing the direction your career takes so thank you once again for joining us here on japan distilled for our audience, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Joshi Natone. Thank you all very much for listening. If you have not already, please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you enjoy listening. It really helps others find the show. And please feel free to reach out on Twitter or Instagram at Japan Distilled. And please check out our website, japandistilled.com, for the show notes on this and every episode. Kampai. Kampai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. 